So this morning, we are going to start a new journey. We have finished uh, the last year together, uh, reading through the 52 greatest stories in the Bible. And uh, so today, we launch uh, into what will not be a one-year journey, but actually what will take us uh, approximately two years to go through, and that is... um, the real Jesus. And that's an interesting title for a sermon series. But uh, what we're finding out more and more is that though the, the, the bookstores are filled with Christian books, bookshelves filled with writings about Jesus, is that we, we still don't really, in the vast majority of what is written and taught, um, it's a Jesus, not of the scriptural making, but it's a Jesus of our society's making, Uh, uh, a Jesus that's shaped and influenced by what we think Jesus should be, rather than a Jesus shaped by what scripture says that he is. And so, A lot of what we'll look at will only serve to reinforce what you already know about Jesus. A lot of what we're going to look at in the next 24 months together will, uh, I think in some ways, maybe shock you a little bit about what you thought you knew about Jesus. But my main goal is to show us more of who Jesus really is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin next Sunday, and we're going to take the month of January and February, and we're going to look at the prayer life of Jesus. How many of you feel like in 2020, you, you could stand to have a little infusion in your prayer life? <laughs> How many of you just go to the prayer closet, figuratively speaking, go in it, sit down, and then wonder, what in the world am I doing in here? <laughs> because most of us, if we were honest, feel like we're absolute failures when it comes to prayer. And so I can think of nobody, no, no one better to look at than the prayer life of Jesus. And basically, we're just going to focus in on what we, uh, the most famous prayer that Jesus prayed when he taught us how to pray, and that is the Lord's Prayer. So we'll spend... January and February, breaking apart the Lord's Prayer. Then we're going to talk about beginning uh, with Lent, those 40 days that lead up to to Easter. We're going to take a look at the passion of Jesus, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And then from there, we're going to move into the preaching of Jesus. And we're going to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, the lengthiest and most well-known sermon that Jesus preached. And then we're going to look at the parables of Jesus, which are uh, those uh, sometimes um, enig- uh, enigmas uh, of teachings that Jesus put forth that even the disciples had a hard time understanding at times until Jesus explained it to them. Then we're going to take a look at the power of Jesus. We're going to dive into the miracles of Jesus and what is, what's that all about. And then we're going to finish the final 17 weeks of the of the 104 weeks on the life of Jesus, talking about 
pursuing Jesus? What does it look like to pursue this Jesus that we just spent um, the better part of a year and a half studying? So that's kind of where we're going. Now, something to give us a little help, because I always want to keep the Old Testament in light. And being away from the Old Testament for two years is, um, uh, one, a little troublesome to me as your pastor, but I think I figured out a way to kind of keep that balance of Old Testament and New Testament. And so this devotional book is going to be key for this first 12 months. And so it's written by a guy named Tim Keller and Kathy Keller. Tim Keller uh, was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's written numerous books. He's one of my favorite preachers, uh, modern preachers. Um, He just, he can... He can say things like no one else can say them. I'll just be honest with you. And if you know Tim Keller, then you know what I'm talking about. Matthew's shaking his head because I think Matthew shares an affinity for, uh, uh, for Keller as much as I do. But this is a book that came out of his personal journals of going through the Psalms. And so he calls it the Songs of Jesus. And I promise you, you will see the Psalms and read the Psalms and understand the Psalms uh, in ways that you have never seen or understood them before because he connects it back to Jesus. And the other part of it is, is that the Psalms, like, you know, we sing uh, out of our modern hymn book. Well, the Psalms were Jesus' hymn book. That's the book that when he sung praise, he sung praise from. And so you're going to enjoy this. And again, Come at 10 o'clock. Uh, we, we gather together in, in one room, the adults do, and, and I just sit there and say, okay, who, who's first? Who wants to be first? And we begin to share and ask questions and share the overflow of our devotional time with God throughout the week based on what we're reading. So if you're not doing that, um, I'm not big on resolutions, but make that your resolution. Make it the res- your resolu- resolution you're going to come to life group at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And, uh, I promise you the people, uh, that come and you talk to them, um, they'll tell you how beneficial it is, uh, that hour that we spend together. All right. So on to the sermon this morning. So this is the introduction sermon for where we're going when we're talking about the real Jesus. So turn to John chapter one, John chapter one, two verses this morning, with really our focus in, with our focus being on one verse, that being verse 14. These are going to be familiar verses. Now, verse 14, I'm going to read from the message translation just because uh, I love the way Eugene Peterson puts the verse in our modern translation. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. The Pursuit of God. And this is what Tozer said at the very beginning of this book pursuit of God. What comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. John chapter 1 verse 1, John writes these words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now watch verse 14 and look at it on the screen in the message translation. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
And we saw with our own eyes the one-of-a-kind glory, like the Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. I have three simple points for you this morning in setting the tone for the next 24 months together. I want to talk to you about how the real, what happens when the real Jesus moves into our neighborhood. Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we can know him. Now that sounds simple, right? Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we can know him. Why did Jesus have to descend? Why, why couldn't we just know about him without him ever coming? Well, look at Acts 17, 22 through 23. It's on the screen. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, now watch, you are very what? Religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, this is the reason why Jesus had to come down to the neighborhood. <laughs> this is why he had to move into our block. This is why he had to locate himself uh, in our universe, on our planet. Is because if God did not come down in the person of Jesus... All we would do as human beings is continue to make idols to gods. And the, the Athenians were so conscious of God and pleasing the gods, plural, they had the pantheon, the, that was the hall of many gods. They were so conscientious of pleasing the gods that they were afraid that there might be a God that they didn't know about, so they erected a statue to the unknown God. And so God comes down in the person of Jesus Christ to do a lot, but in particular, one important task. And that is, He moves into our neighborhood so that we can know who He is. And as the scripture has already said in John, not just so that we can know who he is, but we can know that he is the only God. I'll say it again. Please, I, if, you know, if today was my last day here and someone were to come to you next week and say, hey, what, you went to that church for a long time. What, what did you learn from that pastor? If you learned this one simple truth in the time that I was here, it, it, would, it, would, it would do my soul well. And that is, what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world is that every other religion says, and even some that call themselves Christian, that the way to God is up. But true Christianity says the way to God is down. Why? Because God had to come down to us because we could not go up to him. And had he not come down, we would not know who he was. So Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we could know him. 
You see, it is God's will for us to know him. It's God's will for us to know him. Now, let me point that out to you in, in, in two different verses out of the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Listen to what the prophet says. Thus says the Lord, okay, this is God speaking, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Then a little later on, Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 33 through 34 says this, This is prophetic also. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Now, th- listen, are you, do, do, you hear what's, what's, do you hear what's different? He's not speaking of the old covenant, right? Because the old covenant was written on what? Tablets. Correct? Old covenant written on tablets called the Ten Commandments. That's where the law was written down. But look at what, look at what God is saying now. He's saying something totally different. He's like, I'm going to put my law within them, and I'm going to write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, it is God's will. Did did you notice that part where it said, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord? You know why? Because Jesus was coming down. He was coming down. He was going to be the epitome of the law. He was going to come down in the flesh and teach us how to know the Lord. Why? Because it's God's will for us to know Him. Next, the works of Jesus enable us to know Him. The works of Jesus enable us to know him. So Jesus moves into our neighborhood so that we can know him. It's his will for us to know him. And then these works of Jesus enable us to know him. John 17, 1 through 4 is a prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now watch this. Pay attention to this. Uh, We're going to have some repetitive phrases here. And here it starts. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Hold that, okay? Since you have... No, keep going. I'm just telling them to hold it in their mind. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That you may know him. That they may know you. What? The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on the earth, on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So when he says in verse 1, the hour has come for me to glorify you, that the Son may glorify you, what does he say? I am glorifying you by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. You see, here's, the, here's, here's what happens in salvation. Do you know what ultimately saves people from their sin? Yes, people are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But first, before men can experience, well, I guess maybe it even happens simultaneously, but there, there's often an aspect that we fail to realize that plays an important part in the salvation of human beings. Now, this verse is not coming up on the screen. I'm just going to quote it to you out of 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul says, the reason people don't come to believe the gospel is because their eyes have been blinded to the glorious gospel. They, they can't see the works of Jesus. I mean, they, they see them, they read about them, but they don't see the glory of God. You see, ultimately what brings you and I to salvation it is grace, but it is God's grace that has revealed God's glory. Because, see, you can see the works of God, but unless you see the glory of those works, then you'll never see God. Let me put it to you the way that um, Sherlock Holmes puts it to Watson and the novels. He says to Watson, he says, Watson, you see, but you do not observe. You see, many people can see who God is, but they don't observe who he is, which means they really don't know who he is. I love what Hosea 2.20 says in relationship to this John 17 passage. He says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Again, it is God's will that we know Him. And the way we know Him is through the works that Christ has done. And then lastly, when we talk about it, that, that, God, that Christ moves into the neighborhood so that we can know Him, is that He's worth knowing. He's worth knowing. It's, it's His will for us to know Him. It, Jesus' works enable us to know Him. But here's the bottom line. He's worth knowing. Now, listen to these words in a moment from Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. But look at this quote from a guy named J.I. Packer who probably wrote one of the best Christian books of all time called Knowing God. In Knowing God, he says, a little knowledge of Christ is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Go back to that, Jay. I, I, I want everybody to, maybe you should write that down. That, that's a great little thought to ponder. A little knowledge of Christ is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. There's a whole lot of people that have a, not, a lot of knowledge about God. 
about him, but they don't have much knowledge of Christ. That's experiential. That's, that's something that only occurs by living and walking with Christ. Sinclair Ferguson said, knowing Jesus is your single greatest privilege as a Christian. Now listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 30. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now watch, Paul gets into his personal testimony here. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If everyone else thinks he has no reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now he's, he's rolling out his credentials. As zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, watch what, watch what he's about to say. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now watch, watch. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing. Of knowing. Now, let me ask you a question. At this point in time that Paul is writing this, don't, don't y'all think he knows Jesus? I mean, this is one of, we're, we're getting down to one of the final chronological books of Paul's writing. This is a man who has been, who has had heavenly experiences of which that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble about what he had seen, the glories of which he had seen. But this is what he writes, even after all those experiences, he, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Listen, Jesus has moved into our neighborhood because he wants us to know him. But listen, knowing Jesus will cost you something. It's going to cost you. You cannot know the real Jesus and not experience loss. Why? Because the real Jesus calls real disciples to real sacrifice, to real loss. But can I just ask you this question this morning? Is Jesus worth knowing? Is he worth knowing to you? What's your limit on what you could lose? Do you have a limit? Could you literally lose it all and say, as long as I know Christ, I have everything? Listen, you may not be at that point right now in your spiritual experience, but listen to me. That is where Christ is taking you if you're His. Jesus is an all or nothing Savior. All or nothing. 
Remember that song we, we sing? We used, we, we've sung in the past. I don't know if it's a song that David knows. If it's not, it's one that we could teach him. Remember that song, Worth It All, You Are Worth It All? I give everything I have to have all of you. There's an old praise song from the 90s, from the 80s called Knowing You. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best. You're my God, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Knowing you. The difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. When you truly know Christ, you have the energy to serve him, the boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Two quick questions, and then we're going to hit these last two points very quickly. <clears throat> Are you suspicious of your knowledge of Jesus? You, say, you may say, well, that's kind of a suspicious question. What do you mean? Am I, are you suspicious by what you know about Jesus? There were many things that I grew up being taught. I shouldn't say many. There, there were some things that I grew up being taught. That the more that I studied for myself and dug into the scriptures and pursued Christ, that I just learned that that wasn't true. But I had never been suspicious because I just always believed everything that I had always been taught. You know, there is something beneficial in our walk with God about being suspicious about what we know already. How many, let me, let me put it to you this way. How many of you have sat in a Bible study and you're studying a passage of scripture that you've, you've studied a hundred times and all of a sudden the Bible teacher brings something out of it and you went, whoa. I have totally misinterpreted that passage. How did you get there? You weren't suspicious of what you knew already. And all I mean by that is we're going to go through some very familiar passages of Scripture about Jesus, and you need to be suspicious about what you already know. That's why I said part of what we're going to do is we are going to reinforce what you already know, and to some degree we're going to shock you with what you don't know. But hopefully, and the main aim is to help you to know more of who Jesus really is, the real Jesus. And if you live in the South, you should be especially suspicious about what you know about Jesus because we are the world's worst at misinterpreting the real Jesus. But here's the other question I want to ask you before we lay out these last two points. Are you satisfied with what you know about Jesus? Are you satisfied? All I would say is if the Apostle Paul was not satisfied with what he knew about Jesus, then why do we seem to be so satisfied with what we know about Jesus? 
So Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we can know him. But Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we can so that we can know that he knows and loves us. That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we can know that he knows and loves us. Sometimes we don't think Jesus really knows what we're going through. Or at least we act like we don't think he knows what we're going through. Especially when we're going through pain and heartache and trouble, we oftentimes talk to God and we talk to Christ like he has no idea what's going on with us. Jesus, if you only knew what this was like, if you only knew how bad this hurt, if you only knew how painful this situation is, and we forget that Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be us. You see, Jesus experienced real temptation to sin so that we can really overcome sin's temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to be us. Look look at this verse. Jesus experienced real temptation to sin so that we can really overcome sin's temptation. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have this great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then hold, so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive, watch, mercy, and find grace and help of grace to help in our time of need. Jesus knows what it's like to experience our experiences. He's not a cold, emotionless judge or a flawed or fit and fickled spirit. He is the only one who has both experienced and overcame the power of sin and temptation. As the next verse shows, This not only takes away our excuse for failure, but it reassures us that when we fail, he will offer mercy and compassion. Listen, there's never an excuse for you to sin, but also there is always grace and mercy for the sinner. So Jesus knows what it's like to be us. But listen, we can also know that Jesus loves us. Do you really know that Jesus loves you? Let me ask you this. Do you live like Jesus loves you? I think Annette had the perfect expression for that. The first one, she, 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 she was with me, and I'm with her. But that second one, I know he loves me, but the question is not, do I know that he loves me? Do I live like he loves me? Mm, <laughs> you know, depends on the day, right? Jesus became sin. Leave that up there, Jay. Jesus became sin so that we could become sons and daughters of God. 
That's how you know that Jesus loves you. But not only is it no, not only is that how you know that Jesus loves you, it is in knowing that that we live like Jesus loves us. So go to the next screen. Write this, write this down, please. I beg of you, please write this down. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever, ever dared hope. Amen. What's the gospel? We're more sinful and flawed than we could ever imagine. But at the same time, we're more loved and accepted than we could ever believe. You know, if we just came in each week and recited that to each other, we could pretty much go home and uh, have done ourselves good. That's what we need to remember. But let's go just a little further with that. Let's, let's attach a couple of verses so we're, we're just not fabricating that statement. Look at this. But God showed his love for us in that while we were lovable, Jesus died for us. Oh, doesn't say lovable, does it? Likeable? Tolerable. No, sinners. Sinners. How does that verse change the fact, answer the question, I know that Jesus loves me, but I just don't live like Jesus loves me. How do I live like Jesus loves me? How about one other verse? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus moved into our neighborhood and became sin so that sinners could become sons and daughters. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be fully known and truly loved is what it's like to be loved by God. There's a song that's on Christian radio. It's called Fully Known. 
and, be, and to be loved by you, to be fully known and loved by you. God fully knows us, yet he fully loves us. And if God fully knows us and fully loves us, then how does that affect the way we live? When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us and we were denying him and abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Jesus loved us not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. Jesus did not love us because we were lovely. It's his love that makes us lovely. Jesus didn't love you because you were lovable. He loved you so that you could be lovable. Last point. Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we can become like him to our neighborhood. This kind of picks up where we ended last week's sermon. Jesus moved into our neighborhood so that we could become like him to our neighborhood. Jesus incarnated so that we can imitate. Jesus incarnated so that we could imitate. What is incarnated? Carnate, flesh, in, in flesh, God in flesh, comes down, moves into the neighborhood. So, so why? why? Why does he incarnate, move into the neighborhood? Because he wants us to look at him and then do what he does. so that we can do what he does. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. You want a memory verse for the year? It's a pretty easy one. Be imitators of God as beloved children. You know what he's saying? Do what your daddy does. <laughs> do what your brother does. Imitate them. How can we imitate them? The only way we can imitate is by looking at the incarnation. And that's what we're going to spend the next two years doing. Looking at God in the flesh and the person of Jesus. And all we're going to do is look at that and say, now go do likewise. That's it. Go do likewise. Now last week we took a brief look at the, um, the Good Samaritan. So, so let me bring us back to that for about two, three minutes here. So look at these verses. These are the last two verses of the story of the Good Samaritan. So remember three characters, two characters who should have helped, passed on the other side, Jewish people. A Samaritan comes along and he helps the man in need, takes him to an inn, pays, pays the, uh, 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 the rental fee, leaves extra money in case he overextends his stay. So he, 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 he has made all provisions for this man's care. 
And we said that last week that in the story, it's not go be the good Samaritan because we're the, de- we're the guy dying on the road. <laughs> Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus comes by, he picks us up, he brings life into us, he pays our debts, he cares for us, he provides for us. You remember all of that? And so the lawyers now ask, which of these three do you think prove to be a neighbor to the man who fell to the robbers? That's the question. And the lawyer simply responds with, the man who showed mercy. You see, Jesus puts forth the good Samaritan and he tells us, this is what I'm like. This is what you're like. Now that I have treated you with mercy and grace, here's what you are to do. Go do likewise. Why? Because Jesus says it's incomprehensible for people who've experienced mercy and grace not to go out into the world and to extend mercy and grace. So here's my, here's my one paragraph thought on this. It didn't hit me till I was reading the story again. Notice the last words of the lawyer's answer. He didn't say the man who showed grace... Did he? He said the man that showed what? Mercy. Why did he not use the word grace? Sometimes you you got to see what's not there to really get the weight of what is there. The lawyer felt as though the man deserved his fate. Y'all know the difference between grace and mercy? Grace gives us the gift we do not deserve, while mercy does not give us the punishment we do deserve. You see, when, that, when, when the lawyer said, the man who showed him mercy, you know what he's saying? That guy deserved what he had. Oh, what, what insight. Why? Because remember, if, we're the, if, if, if we are the man laying in the road in the story, then guess what? If we went to hell, if you went to hell today, you would deserve hell. Because that's what everybody deserves. But guess what? If you go to heaven, you go to heaven on the mercy of God. You see, that that man realized this guy got what he deserved. That's why he used the word mercy. We must treat those we meet on the Jericho Road with mercy for Christ found us on that road. And, and, And here's the reason why I'm using the word mercy, not grace. Because a lot of us, when we look at other people, We think that they deserve what they got. Or we think they deserve what they're getting. Well, you know what? If you wouldn't have been so dumb, that wouldn't have happened to you. If you'd have made better decisions, then that wouldn't have happened to you. If you would have done this, that, this, that, we got all these things, right? If you would have not done that, then this wouldn't have happened. Well, you can't be gracious to somebody that you think is getting what they deserve. The only way you can interact with them on a scriptural basis is you got to show them mercy. You got to treat them right even if they do deserve what they're getting. Why? Because you deserved hell, but God has given you heaven. How in the world can you be anything but merciful? We were beaten and battered when we had no strength to care for ourselves 
or to call out for help. The gods whom we trusted left us. Those whom we worshipped, uh, whom we worship, those gods passed by on the other side. You, you remember the gods that you worship that left you hanging out to dry when when you were when you were eating out of the pig trough? Did they did they show up and help you out? They just passed by on the other side. We deserve our fate, for we had put our faith in other gods, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, healed our hearts, rubbed balm into our brokenness, and paid in full our debt. Christ became my neighbor so that I can be a neighbor to others. That's why Jesus said, greater works than these shall you do. Why? How can you and I do greater works than Jesus? Jesus went to the Father. He incarnated himself. He came down. Why? To show us how to live. He left, left us, left us the Spirit. So now, instead of there being one incarnate Jesus, there are now millions of imitators of Christ. Which is better? One Jesus incarnated or millions of imitators of Christ? Millions of imitators of Christ are far greater work than one incarnate Christ. But Jesus had to incarnate to show us how to imitate. So go, I, I think that, go ahead to that last screen. This is the last thought I want to leave you with. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, and yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't inflate our ego. Because we don't need any of that. But guess what? It doesn't tear us down to where we have no confidence in doing anything. It gives deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. That I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Folks, if we're going to go into 2020 and people are going to see Jesus in us, then we have got to own that we were so flawed and broken and dead that it required the death of Jesus. That we were, remember what I told you, depraved, dead, and doomed. But we are so loved and valued that Jesus was willing to come and take our place and take our sin so that we could become sons and daughters. He didn't do it because we were lovely. He didn't do it because we were lovable. He did it because he is love. And if we see that he is love and that there was nothing lovable about us, we will become loving people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we begin this journey in our Bibles to to, to look at your son, Christ. 
God in the flesh, moving into our neighborhood so that we could know you and so that we can know that you know us and so that we can know that you love us. And so that we can, because of that moving into our neighborhood and seeing what a neighbor looks like, we can go now and do likewise. Father, we need to see the real Jesus. The real Jesus that pushes us to love not because our arms are being twisted, but because our hearts have experienced love. That, that our response is one not out of guilt, but out of grace. Not, not one that's trying to measure up, but one that's experienced mercy. Father, I pray that you would create within this congregation a people who will see in fresh and new and bigger and better and deeper ways that what we do should be motivated by what you have done. That we should serve you not to give back to you, but simply we serve in response to what you have already given us. Father, set our souls on fire because we have seen the love that the Father has for us in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to stand and let's sing this last.